Hello, and welcome to another Natter and Gnaw conversation. This podcast is hosted by Clarion Call. Clarion Call's whole ambition is to get behind people who are trying to work together for meaningful change within a community's call to action. Natter and Gnaw came about because of questions we have at Clarion Call and through our work have found that others have the same questions. So welcome to our collective learning journey. In this series, we're interested in exploring what it takes to work together for whole of community change by examining the nuts and bolts of how to do it. We will be hearing from people who have and are tackling whole of community change for a range of social outcomes, unpacking real world examples to understand how to do this so that change is possible, generative and regenerative. I'm your host today, Jennifer Chaplin, one of the co-founders of Clarion Call, and I'm joined today by two trailblazing changemakers, Lisa McKenzie and Sharon Fraser. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the many lands on which we're meeting today and pay our respects to elders past, present and future, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I would also like to acknowledge that all of our work can be strengthened by listening to the voice of our First Nations people and carrying their wisdom and practices into the work as we go forward. I'm joining you today from the land of the Wajuk Noongar people. The Noongar people have lived in the southwest corner of Western Australia for over 45,000 years, and the Wajuk people are the traditional owners of the land around Perth. Lisa, where are you joining us from today? From Yorta Yorta country, Shepparton in northern Victoria, which has a population of about 70,000 people. And Sharon, where are you joining us from? So I'm joining from Ajara country, which has the Jajarang as custodians. And I'd like to pay my respects, of course, and to note that this land was never ceded. And we have a population of about 18,000 in the Shire I live in. Thank you. Tell us a bit more about yourselves and the experience you're drawing from in our conversation today as we explore how to collaborate for whole of community change. Sharon, would you like to kick us off? So I'm really drawing from practice. So experiences that I had in a collective effort that started off as service system a move to whole of community, which was around Grow Goldfields in central Victoria. I'm also drawing from some work that I'm currently involved in locally around the climate emergency, which is another collective impact and is truly whole of community and truly community-led. And then the other pieces are bits that I read that are practice-based bits. So, for example, Queenscliff at the moment, it's interesting, Lisa was saying you're going there for the weekend, Queenscliff have got this incredible whole of community approach to the climate emergency, which is quite phenomenal. And that's community-led. So it's that, that sort of reading around practice. And then the other thing that informs me is what it's not. Um, in our work, Jennifer, you know, we're both co-founders of Clarion Call. In our work in Clarion Call, we get exposed and see some incredible practice that's going on around Australia, but we also see what can community-led, what isn't community-led, and we also see what isn't whole of community. So some of what I think I'll talk from today is what it isn't as well. What about you, Lise? Well, all of my experience is centred locally. So in my own leadership experiences, I guess, leading up to running a collective impact site. So I've been active in, I guess, public community life in Shepparton for 25, 30 years. So lots of experience around leadership and collaboration. And then in 2011 until January this year, I was involved in and then moved to run our Greater Shepparton Lighthouse project, which was a collective impact born in around 2011-2012 to address poor education and wellbeing outcomes in Greater Shepparton and became a whole of community response to everything impacting on childhood outcomes in Greater Shepparton. Beautiful piece too, Lisa. Thank you. So building on what you were what you're drawing from, I'd like to invite you both to paint us a picture of what whole of community change really looks like. Yeah, um, 
Well, I guess it means not solely limited to the people who've previously, in my experience, this is my take on mm-hmm. it, previously playing in the space. So bringing in a whole range of actors from across the community, people who bring diverse lived experience and experience and a wealth of knowledge and leadership and change leadership experience. So for me, that's pivotal. That's that's really essential to getting that really broad mix of people. It means having, if you like, the permission or the mandate or the authority to act. And then it means doing things that are endorsed by the community and on behalf of the community and having the community come in behind that work and creating a movement around it to to achieve catalytic change or change that would not have been possible by whether if individuals or individual organisations were acting. Mm, Beautiful. When you say doing things, that was something that really stuck out to me because I think about how often people think those things are services or programs. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by doing things. Yeah. So initially what we found was that developing the the knowledge, the deep shared understanding is really imperative early on. So that was doing a whole host of research pieces, including what we found to be, I guess, the most pivotal, and that was our Thousand Conversations model, which I know has been picked up in a lot of other communities now. So that really came from recognising that we were hearing some loud voices, but not all of the voices. And so we asked a 1,000 people in our community what they thought, and what we heard was really different to what we'd been hearing from, if you like, those handful of louder voices. And so that gives you, if you like, that confidence to act and the authority to act. You're not acting on your own behalf. You've, you've heard clearly from the community what, they, what they're asking for. And it allows you to prioritise based on the priorities that are identified by the community. It also means bringing in diverse people onto the tables. So Lighthouse, as I said, I've stepped away now, but they continue to operate in a similar way, have about 40 or 50 people on the leadership tables. And they're very diverse in terms of where they've come from and how they represent the community. And they're people who have are already identified as leaders in our community or have that capacity and they have respect, they already hold space in our community on behalf of others. They have authority, they've got a track record often. And so they're people who are able to act on behalf of the community with some confidence and also have that, if you like, that courage of conviction and courage around change leadership and doing challenging things for the good of the community with no agenda. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. What you've made me think of too, Lisa, is when I think of whole of community, it's also embracing the imperfections of it so that not everybody sings kumbaya, not everybody speaks of the work the way that people who are driving an, an initiative may speak of the work. And there needs to be enough room for people to speak of it the way that they want to and to act the way that they see the actions need to be. I know that there are times where I see collective work and and people holding back energy from others saying, no, don't do it yet because we haven't got the plan in place or don't you do it yet because we're not up to the action piece, et cetera. Whereas when I've seen whole of community stuff really take off is when the permission to act is never taken from people. Mm -hmm. And so it might be initial conversations and somebody says, well, I think what we should do about climate change or I think what we should do about raising children is this, like climate change, we need to just be growing vegetables in the street and that's what we need to be doing. And so rather than holding people back, really stepping into that's fantastic and who have you got to help you with that is there anybody I can introduce you to so that we we don't try to micromanage and control action I think that's part of the real difference between I I see of something that might be a government-led initiative that's trying to do change with the best of intentions versus some of the community-held community-driven change that that I see I think that's exactly right Sorry, Sharon. I think that's exactly right. I think there's quite a few things there. One is accepting the discomfort early on, but that never goes away. So, you're <laughs> right. so I think accepting that 
and accepting that people will be drawn to the work, but some people will almost be repelled by the work because they believe they have the solution or they believe it's what's it's already working or they're threatened, to be honest, by the by new players in their space and by people who have different perspectives or haven't had their long journey. People working in a space for 30 years, people coming in and presuming to work in their space. So that is inevitably going to be a whole lot of tension around that. Change can't happen without tension. It's impossible. So it's embracing that tension and respecting it, understanding it, respecting perspective. And it's not really insisting on people being part of the work because if there's not readiness and if there's not will, it may come or it may never come and that's okay as well. But that shouldn't stop or slow down or hold up the work. So it's really being prepared to allow people to sit on the sideline and even criticise because Mm -hmm. a lot of that criticism can be healthy and useful. They can be critical friends and allowing and really carving out and holding a space on behalf of others and allowing, as you say, all sorts of passion and action to occur within that. Ideally, to to plan priorities, collective and priorities, but people have their hobby horses, if you like, and they have their passions and they have their own bents and their own skill sets and capacities. And I think it's got to be a broad church mm. and it's got to bring all sorts of people along. And I think your role as a leader is to hold space for them and to endorse them and encourage them, you know, provided they're not going off in random trajectories that are dubious. But within this broad church, there's there's scope for a lot of a lot of people. I think in a lot of different ideas and a lot of different capacities and a lot of different mindsets and and ways of doing things, ways mm. of working. But there's a few things there that are at the heart of collective impact that I think you you know you still need to bring to the table and continue to hold and remind people of. Mm. I think one of those two legs you've raised is. The leadership that you have coming around the work, and you you said, you know, there's 40 or 50 people you were talking about, and where the whole of community change happens, those leaders come to build relationship, those leaders come to serve a purpose, those leaders come to work with others, those leaders come not believing they do have the Sermon from the Mount, but that they are curious, they want to learn, they want to do something that's going to have, have an effect within the community. And it can be very different from organisational leadership that is often promoted and often paid the big bucks. So, you know, it's not about promotion of self. It's not about climbing up an organisational ladder. It's not about person. It's not about positional power and personal power. And, And it's really interesting to me that a lot of the people that I see stepping into this community leadership are women. I'm hearing a bit of a challenge almost being issued in what you're saying. And that's that that really explicit notion that we're working in a in the context of complexity and what that asks of us in terms of collaboration. Like you talked about how power and authority is held in non-traditional ways and the difference between leadership and management, which we can do when we're doing a project or a program. And then you've stepped into this, this notion of what where real power comes from. And Sharon, you've you've offered up that notion of personal power versus positional power. And I'm wondering if you can both tell us a little bit more about where you what that actually looks like for people. What does personal power look like and what does it do? Well when it's used well, it's on behalf of others. And so I think probably in some ways my standing in our community was made more complex by the work I did at Lighthouse because it's not clear cut. It's slow burn and long burn, you know, long term. And in a lot of ways, it's almost being prepared to put your own integrity, your own leadership, your own standing on the line. And when people see you do that, they come around it. And they come around it, I think, for the right reasons, if you're there for the right reasons. So if you're there to hold power on behalf of others and create a space for them, then I think other people understand that and move towards it. We ended up before COVID with 500 volunteers working across our projects and programs and initiatives and leadership tables on our board. And I think they recognise a different way of working, that there was 
an entry point and for them to be involved in a way of being involved in community that was quite purposeful and that they could be part of something bigger than themselves. And people observe things and they'd recognise the same things we'd recognise, that need for change. So I think it's serving the community you know, there was many t- times I came home and thought, why am I doing this? You know, it's very difficult. I didn't do it for some sort of meteoric rise in that, you know, in, in terms of leadership. I did it because it was a work that had to be done and needed doing and someone had to do it. And and I think that sometimes means really putting yourself aside or putting yourself, you know, long-term in an uncomfortable, difficult position on behalf of the community, which, you know, we've seen many are willing to do and as Sharon says, it is often women. Mm-hmm. Is leadership even possible in this context when it's disconnected from place? Like what I'm hearing you talk about is you're, you know, I know both of you are part of the communities you worked in. So I wonder, can these can these kind of initiatives even be led by people without that deep connection to community? No, I don't think it's possible. I haven't seen, I don't believe, observing different initiatives come and go. I don't think I've seen one thrive where where the person hasn't got some runs on the board in the community, some standing in the community, some recognition of their values in the community and and some practice in working in that space. In Yeah, I, I don't think it's actually possible and I think it requires... Well, you could do it, but it'd be quite lonely, I imagine, because you really, I found, draw on all of those connections and all of that goodwill that you might have in the community. I think, too, what I see happen is the notion of place-based has become quite a trend. Mm -hmm. So people talk about place-based and then what they'll say is, so we define the place, so it's going to be in this community or it's going to be in this local government area. But... To be truly place-based is to have connection and deep connection to place and to sit with defining the place from the connection rather than from a funding boundary or from a local government boundary. So, for example, as I said, you know, just within my local community, some volunteer work that I'm doing one day a week around the climate emergency, we're really sitting with the notion of what is the boundary of place you know, because where is the connection? Is the boundary of place the Shire? Is the boundary of place a bioregional boundary? Is the boundary of place First Nations, Jara country? It's a question worth exploring because it needs to be answered by connectivity. Where is there the connectivity? And where is there the passion? Like what's when people want to change things around here, what is here? And I don't think that in the current environment, we're giving enough time and space to consider what place is and having enough conversations in our initiatives around when we talk about place, what are we talking about? So it's almost like everything's place-based because the funding comes in at a shire level, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. Mm. It makes a difference because if you follow the connectivity to the place, then, it, then you can work within communities to help change the, what that place is. It, it does no good if if we define our place locally, if the place is defined as Castle Main and I live 20 minutes down the, the track in Newstead, well, I'm not as interested in changing Castle Main, if that makes sense. If the place is defined as a bioregion, am I really interested in what happens in Swan Hill? So I think we really do need to think about connectivity a lot more than we do. And I'm hearing you really ground that in the people, that, that the place can't be defined on a, on a piece of paper or something, that it has to be defined by people. And to the point that you've brought up, people who are deeply connected into that place. And building on that notion of people, I'm interested in how you each got started. Like, who were the movers and the shakers? When you've seen the work start to kick off, who did you build that with? And what did that look like in the early stages? Well, Lighthouse, it came out of some conversations. The Fairly Foundation actually funded and organised a couple of forums in Shepparton to talk about what were overall poor outcomes around well-being in community, but particularly around children. And they brought in a whole lot of the players in the community and there was a small core of us who were charged with going away and exploring a collective impact approach around children and well-being and from there we 
to be honest, in a lot of ways, some people self-selected, but we also hand-picked people we knew had the characteristics to see this through. And a lot of them have been on that journey for 10 years. They've stayed with it. They also had, if you like, the standing in our community for people to know that this was, we meant business, this was really serious work. They had relation resources at their disposal. So whether that be funds or employees or a large social or community network, they had know-how at their disposal and they'd practice leadership over a long period of time. So those people, some of those people became our board, others went on to our leadership tables and others became, if you like, long-term friends and supporters and volunteers. So that process, it, was, it wasn't linear, it was rocky because there was people early on who had very strong views in the direction it should go that weren't shared by others, all those sorts of things you would naturally expect when you do anything and try and, if you like, shake the tree and try and create fundamental change, not not small incremental change, but we were looking for sort of fundamental change. And people who were happy to sit with that level of discomfort, who had, if you like, the lived experience and that authority within the community to hold space in a complex space like that worked wonders in holding together and moving forward. And so it did get easier over time and certainly there's, you know, a really powerful mandate now. But it required that that sort of coming together and nutting things out, being on a learning journey together. So really listening to the community together, I just can't stress that enough, not making assumptions not listening to, if you like, the loudest voices or the people perhaps who've held the space in the past who certainly have a role to play but are, are only among the players. They're not, not the only players. And so really listening and serving what you hear really became our mantra because you really can't go wrong when you think you deeply listen and understand what you're hearing and, and act on behalf of the community in, in what they're telling you. It won't always be easy, but the chances of success are much higher, I think. Mm. I think one of the things you said there, Lise, that really resonated with me was starting small and starting with people who are wanting to step up for a broader outcome than, you know, their own organisation or their own agenda, really. In the two examples that I'm drawing most deeply on in my own experience around the Go Golfwood stuff and the, the current work that I've only recently stepped into in my own community around tackling the climate emergency, which is called the Warrack Initiative, it very much in both cases started off with a very small group of people who wanted to make change together and also were able to see a catalytic moment in time that they could jump onto. So in the Go Goldfields experience, it was the Shire being named as 79 out of 79 Shires in the CIF index, which is about social economic development. So it was at the bottom of the ladder in the state and hitting hitting really rock bottom and using that as the leverage to make the change. And in the Warrack Initiative, it was the school children doing the climate strikes that led to a whole lot of leverage around the Shire declaring a climate emergency. And so how the young people are held in this work is they don't come and sit on around tables and, you know, be parts of meetings. They are held as, the, as the, there are two groups that we see as guardians of the work. So one guardianship group is the young climate activists and the other guardianship group are, are the local elders from the Jajarang. It's, it's using those sort of opportunities, those catalytic events, and you get a few people who can see the possibility from that opportunity. And that goes to having a whole lot of different people around the table with different mindsets and capacities and capabilities, doesn't it? Because I think you do need the visionaries. You need those people who are long-term strategic thinkers and there's less of them around than other categories of people, if you like. And so when you find them their goal, those people that really can see beyond, you know, the smaller operating environment, the busyness, but can see a long-term picture and, and, and a really genuine change leaders. And I think they're imperative for this sort of work. 
Mm. Um, one of the things that you just said, Sharon, piqued my interest around that notion of structure, how we organize ourselves. Because if I think about the ways that we step into the work that are fundamentally unhelpful, you know, things like identifying the place when we're not from the place and, you know, not getting the right, the right people in the conversations that you talked about working with the young people as a guardianship group and in a way that worked for them. And I'm thinking how, how sometimes we, the work gets kicked off by thinking, oh, we're going to organize a structure and put everybody in different groups. How did you guys work that out in your community, but how, how people wanted to organize themselves for action? What did that look like? In the GoGoldfield examples, we worked it out by stuffing it up the first time around, really. (laughs) So, you know, we dived into, you know, this intersectorial alliance and set up action groups and did all of this stuff quite early on in the piece that was way before we really had the community authority to do this work. And it ended up look starting to look taste and feel like service coordination rather than community change so that that's how we eventually then did you know a whole lot of community conversations and we called it a process that we call resetting the table which really led to bringing on people with much more community authority into the work and being a lot more creative around creating structures and processes that fitted the rhythm of the community rather than the rhythm of a project manager or the rhythm of an organisation or of government department. So, for example, one of the things that got set up there was a family violence reference group, which wasn't a part of any design. It grew out of the many conversations that we were having with people with lived experience around family violence. And we had a group of women who wanted to be a part of the decision-making but would not ever show up to another for another an open group because they were either still living in unsafe environments or they were not living in unsafe environments but they didn't want anybody to find them. So, and they, the whole way that that, that was run was through um, conversations through art activities, conversations through music, conversations through story, so it's not like there was a, a a traditional way of running a meeting even in, in order to have conversations and co- constantly be respectful of getting these women's information into the, the work. Now, that didn't work perfectly. You know, as Lisa said, we still had a whole lot of pushback from services that own family violence, basically mm-hmm. saying, actually, that's not going to work. <laughs> so We've tried that and it doesn't work. And then the other sort of more governance structure that I'd like to just speak to briefly, which is around this WARAC initiative, is really, you know, constantly asking that question, what is it that we need now to do the work that needs to be done? And what is it that we're building towards that might be useful for the future? And it's that constantly, you know, the form follows the function. Instead of coming up with a governance structure and fitting everything into it, it's coming up with structures and processes that you need as you need them. I agree with all of that. Uh, We did start with the table that it was evident it was a a loose alliance, if you like, but it was evident that some of those people were, in fact, on there to block the work, that they were threatened by it and felt that, if you like, it was impeding on their space and potentially their funding and their position of authority. And so we let that one slide a little bit and and found it's really a coalition of the willing it's finding those people who are not there because I think one thing we learned early on is it's not an organisation sending a rep. And I think that's really fraught because mm-hmm. that person may have not have the personal characteristics or the standing or the share the values. And I think what's really important is to identify individuals and their personal characteristics and their personal commitment and then it's really committing to each other in the work and to seeing it through I've been involved in a lot of startups of small organ community organizations and it really requires a, a handful of people to hold and hold that space and be committed to the journey and and when people see that they start to coalesce around it if, if they think it is the right work 
and the work that will serve the community and and they'll move to even and sometimes it's the busiest people who'll move towards it because they go okay I can see this is the right work and I need to be part of that mm. so it's holding it's holding in a lot of times and I don't mean holding others at bay and I don't mean controlling more holding on behalf of others and and being resilient and resourceful early on with pulling together funding. Another thing that really stood us in good stead early on was we came across a startup in Sydney called Sea Data and Analytic. It's now very well known and established, but we were their first customer and worked with them to create the Sea Data platform that is now used, I know, in a lot of communities. And that gave us some tools because a lot of the pushback was around, you know, there's a lot of data on that. There's all, you haven't seen the evidence and, you know, get your act together on data really. So that was our, it provided us with a framework and an opportunity to gather and collect and hold data. And then you start to build your authority in the space. You've got the data, you're building it in real time, you know, often in some long-term data, but also that data that relates to your projects and initiatives. And you're able to, it, it creates a level of certainty, if you like, in the work or some certainty and gives and some authority and gives people some measures to watch and to get to coalesce around again. So I think some of those, if you like, old school, we started Lighthouse about the same time the work came out or the year after the work came out of Stanford in 2011, I think, 2010. So I think it all still rings true, a lot of those key tenants, but there's the, if you like, the practice on the ground that's that's been able to complement what we learned from that initial work. Mm. I want to acknowledge that you brought in the notion of data and also acknowledge when we might leave that for today because that's the whole episode. And so I feel like if we open up that, people will be really disappointed that we can't really dive into it. And just want to take us a step back to what you build, I guess, diving into what you talked to about services, people sometimes pushing back. And what happens when money's involved? Because it interests me that often you have a bunch of services around a table. They may have funding, but they got it from somewhere else. So what, what does it look like when we've taken those who hold the purse strings on the journey? And how, how do we hold that in a, in a collaborative effort? I think we should acknowledge that the service system and, you know, Lisa and I both sit in Victoria, we're very fortunate with the yeah. service system that we have and that with, without the service system, we would have incredibly higher levels of vulnerability, a lot more people falling through gaps, you know, that is absolutely to be acknowledged. I think what is the difference, though, is that the likes of the servant system and government actors and government funders are a part of the story. They're not the whole story, Mm -hmm. nor can we assume that they can have the authority or the power within community to make the changes that are needed. So they are an integral and important part of the change that that you're going on. And the more that those actors come in service to the community and in service to the work, the more that those organisations can really use the resourcing that they have and the programs that they have to improve outcomes that are that are greater than than what is possible by dealing with one person at a time. Absolutely. I entirely agree with that. We have wonderful organisations in our community that have done extraordinary work over a long period of time. So this, it, the work in no way denigrates from what's occurred in the past. It's a recognition of the complexity and the scale of the issues and the fact that well, it's a whole foundation of collective impact that one group or one one type of person or organisation is not able to address the level of complexity. And, in fact, a lot of the answers do lie in other parts of the community, I think. For example, we found our business community to be extraordinarily agile in this space, willing in this space, high capacity to bring a lot of the skill sets they've had. You know, it might be around logistics, it might be around finances, it might be around really acting decisively and very outcome focused. So I think that we've seen by bringing in other parts of the community that you just really, if you like, bringing extra resources, know-how, 
competency, capability, different mindsets and different ways of working to solve what are really have been intractable issues which I work to solve. In terms of money, I, I like to think of resources, not just money, because, for example, our business community has brought an extraordinary array of resources and skill sets and their time is invaluable. They've given extraordinary amounts of time. They've provided, you know, workforces, 50 people from different workforces have volunteered with Lighthouse, individual workforces have volunteered with Lighthouse over time. So I think thinking about resources and latent resources in your community and unlocking what's already there. People are really keen to get money from the outside. And yes, we were too. And it is an imperative to be able to fund a backbone and to be able to invest in, in some responses. But there's so many existing resources that really came to the fore in our community in last year when during a COVID crisis here, we had 20,000. That was when we were having hard lockdowns and we had 20,000 people in a hard lockdown. And it resulted in thousands of people here going hungry because a lot of the workers were in lockdown who ran supermarkets. Logistics started to unravel really quickly. And the result was that we had thousands of people who were unable to access food. And that came upon us really quickly. And we saw that by using our backbone and using all of those existing networks and I guess the trust that we built over time, we're able to organise a very rapid response. And so within two or three days, we had $200,000 more come come to us to spend on what needed to happen to, to feed those people. We had offers of warehouses and food and trucks and volunteers. We had more than 200 volunteers involved using their own cars. We created a warehouse and packed out of that and worked with our food share and our council and the army and many others. There was, was a very large-scale operation. And, but directly through the work of Lighthouse and our partners, we delivered 8,000 8, drops of food and emergency you know, med medicines and pet food and all sorts of things. It happened, it literally happened in a couple of days that we all were able to organise that. And but that goes to a decade of, you know, building trust and using that the governance structure we had. We could accept funds. We, we've got a board that, you know, is agile and willing, willing to hold risk and willing to pivot on behalf of our community as required. And it was an extraordinary effort. And, and so that used, yes, money, but incredible latent resources that existed around know-how and logistics and just capacity to make things happen. I know someone who's got a truck. I can get you five trailers. I can get you 5,000 eggs, whatever it is, you know, that it all just came together. So, yes, resources rather than money, I think it's really important to think about because there's so many unlocked, so many resources waiting to be unlocked, I think, in the community. You know, what you speak to, to Lisa, to me, I think you're right. It's It was an 11-year overnight success story, the COVID response, wasn't it? That that whole, that all of your, all of the things that you have been building around relationship, trust, the way that your board operates, the way that you hold and, and have held the work, the way that there is the engagement of people across your whole ecosystem, including business, as you've talked about, makes that overnight success possible. I have been privileged enough during COVID to support other collective efforts that, have, uh, of course, have been called on in communities to have to make the same response that haven't got that latent trust that haven't got that community connectedness, that community ownership, that community authority that you talk about. And it, it's been a very different journey. You know, one community that I was working with, they had heaps of food, but the food was all either tin food or chocolate, you know, so it was really tricky to get nutrition and nutritious food to the children of their communities. So I think that that slow burn that you talk about can't be underestimated. And it's not it's not day-to-day -day sexy stuff. It's not the thing that makes the front page of the newspaper as you're struggling with some of this. You know, there was lots of media coverage, I know, of the Lighthouse stuff during the COVID piece, but that was built on 10, 11 years of holding space. 
So I just wanted to acknowledge that. It's it's interesting that you you know you started out. I know both of you are involved in you know initiatives or have been that have had a broad scope of action that are really looking at movement building, and how different that is from you know give your building on your example, Lisa, like an initiative that is there to improve you know outcomes for children. That you're it sounds like you're doing things that are acting in a broad way. You're not just doing a series of strategies now that will lead to systemic change eventually, but you're it's you're doing many things. And that that over the course of doing many things together has built a true movement that enables you to then mobilize that movement as it's needed to still contribute to the original outcome or brave. What are some examples, Sharon, in the stuff that you're in the work that you're doing around different types of action that are happening focused on an outcome? Yeah. So the the volunteer work that I'm doing in collective impact in my own community, it's much earlier stages. So it's you know, it's right at the beginning of the stuff that Lisa was talking about earlier. And it's really listening, holding lots of individual conversations. We've got a small group that's holding the whole. We've had 50 people that have signed on to wanting to be a part of driving this in the community. It's holding events that where these 50 people can get to know each other, network. So rather than popping them in a structure straight away, it's really building the relationship, really giving them opportunities to hear about what others are doing, to talk about what what they might do. And for people who are already acting in the space to, to talk about what they're doing to others and to get some echoes back about, you know, that this is good and this is challenging to be doing it at, at this point in time. So I think that notion of talking, listening, sitting with, being curious about what people bring you instead of being a gatekeeper. So somebody brings you something that's, so for example, there's local artists that work in our community. One of the things that's happening around Warwick is is really trying to think about what are all the things that need to be reset in order to challenge the climate emergency, including the way that we run economy. So there are a group of local artists that ran a a clay currency exhibition and got business to basically buy some of the clay currency so that people could use the clay currency actually to to buy things in the community. So if you're micromanaging and controlling stuff, you'd say you, you, it would be easy for something like that to say, actually, that's not a part of the climate emergency. Like how is that leading to zero net emission? Whereas in this Warwick initiative, it was encouraged, nurtured. There's been conversations about how can we use this alternative currency to help build the Wararak response? So it's it's trying to be open and curious, even about things that you think, oh, I don't know that this has got anything to do with what we're talking about here. Thank you. Can I just say, I think when, if you're talking about changing a town and changing, rather than we certainly do do quite a lot of programs at Lighthouse where there's a gap or where no one else, there's not an obvious player to do that or there's not the will or it's better suited to be driven by the community. But if you're looking to change a town, a whole lot of things are relevant that are not immediately about sitting reading to a child. It's about changing the conditions for childhood. And so creating a movement that creates a sense of belonging and engagement and well-being for the whole community and opportunities for the community and more equity in the community and finding and bridging the gap, we really have a, I think in the past, I think it's improved a lot and I think our COVID response really helped. But we really had a divided community where we've got have-nots and haves and we have really strong examples of both, if you like. So bridging that gap I think has been our most important work and having the people who have the most resources and opportunity in our community turn their minds and their attention and their effort uh, and working with those who've had less opportunity and have been, I think, marginalised has been a fundamental shift, I think, in our community. And I think I think that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of and it's the thing that has created the most change in our community, a sense of we're all in this together, we share common goals, the success of your child is my success as well. And so I think creating that catalytic change, which we've had an evaluation show that that catalytic change has occurred 
in pockets in our community as a result of our work. Some people are not convinced unless you're doing things. There's programs, there's evidence of action, and that provides, if you like, the operating environment for people to come together, to be with people they're not normally with, to turn their mind to the lives of others, and that has created, I think, those changing conditions in our community that I think are really evident to a lot of people now. That's the work for me. Mm. I think you've hit the nail on the head and that's about being curious. It's, it's about listening, but it's also at times about getting out of the way. So, you know, I'm reminded by your conversation there, Lisa, about some work when, you know, back in the Go Golfwoods day where Go Golfwoods was supporting a child aware initiative. And by supporting, I mean, we held it loosely. We just made the made it possible for, for parents. And in this case, it was all mums who wanted to improve outcomes for other parents in their community they wanted to they wanted to have that that other parents were able to parent their children the way that they wanted to and so you know we just provided things like childcare, morning tea a warm room to meet in on a day like today or you know support to get their transport if was needed so we just provided ways for this to happen and let them speak and just took notes for them or connected them with people but really got out of the way a bit too in terms of trying to control what it is that they wanted to do and they came up with this idea that because they were seeing a whole lot of disconnected families and you know they would see other mums with pushes that were not at any of the community things that they were a part of and so the the sophisticated strategy they came up with is if they saw a, a parent in town with little kids that they didn't know they would say hello and initially only two of the mums were brave enough to do it and then one of those two mums came back with a story where she had spoken to a a mother that she saw walking her child to kinder a couple of days a week. And the mother was, you know, fairly unkempt and looked a bit rough around the edges. But anyway, she decided she'd get brave enough to say hello. And before she had, she had this notion of this mother being, you know, struggling, but, you know, it genuinely had some questions about whether she was a good mother. You know, the baby seemed a bit roughly dressed, et cetera, et cetera. What she found by talking to this mother was that this mother was walking her child to kinder and had three, two or three other children and a husband with a degenerative neurological condition who couldn't work. And so she had this complexity of life and still in all of this complexity was walking this little girl two Ks to kinder. So it, it moved her perception of this mother from one that she thought was, you know, maybe a bit rough to having great admiration for what this mother was doing. And bringing that story back shifted the rest of the women in the child aware group. And so all sorts of things happened, like bush play group numbers went through the roof. Attendance at baby rhyme time went through the roof. So all sorts of connections happened by the simplest of things, which was just saying hello to someone and using the power of story to shift people's thinking. I think you've said two things there that I think are really important to what I've experienced as well, Sharon, and, and one is connection and our, the Lighthouse Theory of Change is based on connection and this assumption that there's something wrong with them and they need fixing I think is something that we gave up a long time ago and recognise that we all benefit from connection and, you know, I had just in the last week or two a woman who's very well connected. Her husband's a long-term GP in the town. Her children had left home a long time ago and, and she's now volunteering at one of our family haven, which is a safe place for mothers and babies. And she has called it like a life-changing experience for her, the joy that she's getting out of that. So the assumption that there's something wrong with them, there's something wrong with the town when everyone isn't thriving and we all need to think about our role in that and you've described that really well and the other thing that really came to mind was that sort of that responsiveness that starts by listening moving into storytelling and sharing what you've heard and packaging that up in a way that's very digestible to others or or is powerful and then using that as a lever for change and I don't think anything has been 
better for us, for Lighthouse, than telling those stories and deeply compelling stories about why people just need a hand up. They don't need fixing. They're not broken. They have. They know what they need and listening and responding to their needs and, and giving them those open doors and opportunities and entry points because they've been marginalised systematically and purposefully over a long period of time, I think. Mm. Thank you. Thank you both. We've actually reached our, our time today. <laughs> thought it would go by fast. Before we say our final closeout, I wanted to give each of you a chance to, I guess, share the the key things that you'd like to emphasize with others from our conversation today? I think kindness. It's a bit of a daggy word that doesn't seem sophisticated enough sometimes, but I think whatever your uh, initiative is about, ours was about children or continues to be about children, and I think what you want for your own children and what you'd want for your nieces and nephews, everyone wants for their children. And so bringing deep kindness and a, a sort of a, a service servant approach to the work and serving what you hear and responding to that and setting aside your old agendas or your imperatives to secure funding for your organisation or grow your own status or grow your organisation, but to serve what you hear and respond to that without fear or favour because there's lots of voices that want to get in the way of that and it's actually the hardest thing to do. That's beautiful, Lisa. And for me, it's around connection and also recognising that we all have the trap of our own egos and at times recognising that and being kind to ourselves but putting the ego aside so that it gives permission, you know, giving permission for yourself to feel the ego but also knowing that you need to set it aside in order to be able to really make space for others. And I wanted to bring that in because it's not that in doing this, there is some sort of superhuman quality that, that we bring to hold this work. We each have flaws and foibles and blind spots and we are a part of the system the way that everybody else is. We we're not holding this magic wand, but if we can hold that with curiosity, as Lisa says, kindness and connection, I think we have the best chances of, of bringing this into something that's quite meaningful. And I'd add courage for the journey. Yes. <laughs> as you were both talking, I was, I was also reflecting on you as people, the others in this space that continue to build and contribute to the field. And Sharon, as you were telling that story, about the mum saying hello. I've not only heard that story many times, but I've told it and I had no idea that was you all <laughs> these years. And, you know, here we are working together and having this conversation, the three of us. And Lisa, I encountered the work of the Lighthouse Project in 2015 when I stepped into the field. And I wanted to genuinely thank you both for your time and your generosity and your honesty today. And also recognize that this field is being built as we're all playing on it. And it just amazes me about the tapestry of stories and knowledge that informs our work in places sometimes where we didn't know where it came from. So thank you both so much for your time today and look forward to chatting again and hearing more and being able to you know, continue to explore this and spread the wisdom. So thank you. Thank, Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Sharon.